Good morning. My name is Eric Hohn, and it's my privilege to be able to bring God's Word to you today. I'm excited about this new series we're starting. It's called Afterlife. We're going to be taking a look at what, what is it that God has for us after this life, and what does that mean to us and how we live our lives today. I want to start off by telling you about my children's favorite holiday, Thanksgiving. Several years ago, some cousins of mine bought a house, and they began hosting Thanksgiving. And every year since, our entire extended family has come down upon their house for Thanksgiving weekend. We've had sometimes 30 people around the table. And we spend the entire weekend together, and it's just a wonderful time of being with some of the people that we love the most. And I remember my children, when they were younger, sitting in the cars, were driving down on that Wednesday night. And they would get excited. The closer we got, the more excited they got. They just wanted to be there. They looked forward to it, just wanting to be with our family that they could just enjoy time with. And even today, it's their favorite holiday. As we start this new series looking at what does God have for us after this life, it got me thinking about that and how excited are we for what we're going to be experiencing? To be with the one we should love the most. Does that filter through? I'm sure you can connect with those times in your life, maybe as a child, when you were just excited to get somewhere. Do we have that same excitement about this? You know, throughout history, humans have had this sense that there is something after this life. You know, you look back even as early as the Mesopotamian culture, through some of their burials and through some of their writings, we know that they believed something happened after this life. And you go through from the Romans to the Greeks, even modern day, every major religion has some belief in something beyond this life. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So much of our spiritual reality is a mystery to us. God has revealed a lot to us, but there's a lot that we don't understand. But it's clear that he has placed in us this desire to be with him and to spend eternity with him. Humanity has just always seemed to know that there's something beyond the life we live in on this earth. Isn't it odd that even sometimes you talk to people who don't claim to have any spiritual experience, don't claim to have any religious beliefs, and yet you talk to them about someone who has died, and often they'll say they're in a better place. Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples in John chapter 14, said, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. We don't really know what heaven's going to look like. Scripture gives us some clues, uh, but it doesn't give us an exact picture. But it does give us some indication as to what to expect. It's probably true that there's less that we know about heaven than what we do know. But from what we have been given, what we do know, we have every reason to be excited about it. And so because the afterlife is a reality that most of us in humanity throughout history have believed in, and because scripture very clearly points us in that direction, it's something that we want to take a look at and also question ourselves about if it's a reality, if it's true, what does that mean for us today? How do we live our lives in response? And so today I'd like to take a look at three things that we do know from scripture. The first is 
it's where Jesus is. The second is, it's where evil isn't. And finally, how do we get there? I remember several years ago, my in-laws owned a house on the New Jersey shore. The backyard of the house fed off into a lagoon. And that lagoon was attached to a series of lagoons that kind of connected together and made their way out to a bay and eventually into the Atlantic Ocean. We often use that canoe or that uh, lagoon for um, recreation. We would swim in it. We would uh, canoe in it. We would paddle boat. We had a great time with that lagoon. One day, my brother Alana and I decided to take a canoe and go through the lagoons and eventually go out to the bay, something we had never done before. Well, it was fun until we got out to the bay. It wasn't long into the bay where the water started getting choppier. There was just an awareness that the water was deep underneath us. It was just vast. I got to tell you, we didn't get far in the bay before I was terrified. And I looked at my brother-in-law and I just said, you know what, maybe we should head back. Just being, if you've ever had that experience of being out in water, where it's just, you can't see anything and it's deep and you're just aware of your powerlessness, it can be terrifying. Throughout human history, especially in the ancient world, water was seen as something that represented chaos, death, and evil. That was even true in the minds of the Israelites. In Isaiah 57:20, it says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. In the book of Revelation, we see the beast rising up out of the sea. Even in modern day thought, the sea has always been seen as something to be feared and conquered. I don't know too many scarier images than this one here. This poster, this movie poster alone, is responsible for people not wanting to go swimming during the summer. And so we have this sense that water, the sea, the ocean is something to be feared, something that is connected with death and powerlessness. And yet in scripture we see this tension between that cultural view and the reality that God has complete control over it, that he is sovereign over it. We see it as early as a creation story where God created the waters and he separated them. We see it in the Exodus when the Israelites are being led out of Egypt that God parts the Red Sea so that they could walk across on dry land. Not long after that, God stops the flow of the Jordan River so that the Israelites could walk into the Promised Land. Psalm 74 says, It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. Psalm 89 says, You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Even in the New Testament, we see this theme continuing as we see Jesus walking on the water. And one of my favorite stories in the Bible is when Jesus is, the disciples and Jesus are out on a boat and Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat and a storm comes up and the waves start coming and the wind is howling and the disciples start fearing for their lives. And they go and they wake up Jesus, which by the way, right there, Jesus is asleep. He's not bothered by this. And they go and they wake him up and they say, don't you know that we're going to die? And, and at a word, he calms the waves. Jesus himself, in fact, uses the imagery of water to describe himself when he's talking to the woman at the well. And he says, I am the living water. 
Even the act of baptism, where when you were lowered into the water, it represents death. And when you were raised up out of the water, it represents resurrection and new life. And this, this idea of God's sovereignty over water culminates in the picture that we see in heaven in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. A few verses later it says, He who was seated on the throne said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And the next chapter over, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. That river flowing through the city of God is Jesus. So what? So Jesus is in heaven. What does that mean? What are, what are we trying to talk about here? If chaos is represented by water, then what does that mean to those of us who experience chaos in our lives? What does it mean that Jesus is the living water, that he has sovereignty over it? What about the evils that we face and the things that we fear? Jesus is sovereign over it. And it's not just that Jesus is there in heaven. That's true, but that's not, that's not the significance. It's not that just that he exists there in heaven. He is the source of life there. He is the living water. We will never thirst again. You know, what do you think some of the things that we thirst for in our lives are? We thirst for affirmation. We thirst for comfort, for security, for belonging, for purpose, for love. We hunger and thirst for these things. And what this is saying is that he fulfills it all. He completes it. There's an author that I love that many of you I'm sure are familiar with, C.S. Lewis. Now C.S. Lewis, for those of you who don't know, um, he's a Christian author and he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a very famous children's book. In fact, uh, Disney several years ago made a few films out of the Narnia books. Well, he also wrote many other books and one of the great books that I love is called The Great Divorce. Now, The Great Divorce is a fictional representation. Actually, it's a dream that somebody has about heaven. And, and the fictional representation in The Great Divorce is you have a group of people who have not made it into heaven, and that is they are stuck in their sin. They are locked into their sinful ways of thinking and being, and they haven't open, opened themselves up to forgiveness and salvation. And those people are represented as phantoms or as ghosts in the story. And then you have people who are in heaven, representatives, uh, people who live in heaven, and they are coming out to have conversations with their loved ones who are these phantoms, hopefully convincing them to surrender their lives. And so this fictional representation uh, shows these different conversations. And in one of these conversations, there's a couple of phantoms over here, and one of the residents of heaven coming to speak. And this resident of heaven is the wife of one of the phantoms who is the husband. And the husband, it's clear that his sin is that he is just wrapped in self-pity. 
He is wrapped in the need of affirmation, almost a narcissistic kind of everything is about me and he can't see anything beyond himself. And he says at one moment to his wife who is a resident of heaven, he says, don't you need me anymore? And I love, I'm gonna pick up how C.S. Lewis picks this up here. But of course not, said the lady. And her smile made me wonder how both the phantoms could refrain from crying out with joy. What needs could I have, she said, now that I have it all? I am full now, not empty. I am in love himself, not lonely, strong, not weak. You shall be the same. Come and see. We shall have no need for one another now. We can begin to love truly. I'm sure you've had the experience where you you have somebody that's going to come over to your house. Maybe you've invited them for dinner or you just know they're going to stop by. And what do we do? We, we clean up the house. We vacuum the carpets. We, we put the dishes, clean the dishes, put them away. All the dirty stuff, the laundry, the mess, we stuff that into a closet because we want to present our best. We want them to see us at our best. And then we have those friends, maybe family members, hopefully we have them, who when they stop by, we could still be in our pajamas. There could be dirty dishes in the sink because they don't care. They love us, they accept us, they know us, we have a deeper relationship with them, and so we allow them to see, see us more as we truly are. But even with them, there's some things we don't want them to see. In heaven, you get to be your truest self. You get to shed all those secrets, all those things you want to stuff in the closet, all those masks that we wear, because we don't need them anymore. I love this quote from Dr. Seuss, the children's writer. Today you are you, that is you, truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. In heaven, we get to be the youest you that we could ever be. Because you're completely fulfilled in him. Every longing every, that you have, every thirst that you have is found in Christ and you can truly be your truest self. In Revelation chapter 22, it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And because heaven is where Jesus is, it's where evil and its results will not be. Because heaven is where Jesus is, it's where evil and its results cannot, will not be. Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And earlier on in chapter 7, it says, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I'm going to quote again from that book, The Great Divorce, and and I apologize that I'm going to quote a few times from it. Maybe I'm overusing it, but I just love some of the things it says in connection to what we're talking about. But talking about that idea of good and evil, it says, 
there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. And the higher and mightier it is in the natural order, the more demonic it will be if it rebels. It's not out of bad mice or bad fleas you make demons, but out of bad archangels. When we surrender ourselves to God by accepting his gift of salvation, when we find ourselves completely in his presence on that day in heaven, everything of darkness, every evil will be completely shed away. And we will be allowed to be our truest selves, who we were truly meant to be, fulfilled in him. Many of you know that I work as a counselor at a a Christian rehabilitation program. And many of our folks that come to us, men and women, come to us straight from prison. And it's interesting that I often hear them say, after they've been in our program a few days or a few weeks, that they are relieved that they get to be themselves. Prison's not a nice place. It's not a safe place. And often when people go to prison, they have to put on a persona in order to survive there. And when they find that they've come to our program and they find that they're in a safe, loving place, they begin to shed that persona and they begin to become more themselves. And it's very liberating and very freeing for them. What parts of us do you think are going to be washed away when we're in the presence of Jesus? Maybe self-doubt. Maybe the need to prove ourselves. Maybe the need to have other people think about us the way we want them to. What will you no longer need? I don't know if you've ever had the experience of uh, visiting one of the caves in our area, whether it be Indian Echo Caverns or, or Crystal Caverns or whatever. But if you have, they often will take you to the deepest part of the cave. And then once you're there, they'll prepare you for it, but then they'll turn the lights off. Just so you can experience what it's like to be in that cave without any light. It is absolute darkness. And yet, when the light is turned on again, the darkness goes away. Imagine if you were to turn on a gazillion watt halogen bulb in that space. The darkness would just flee. The darkness cannot be in the presence of the light. Revelation 21 says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. It's not just that there's no evil in heaven because it's such a nice place. It's no e- there's no evil in heaven because it's where Jesus is. It is where his glory shines fullest and evil cannot be in his presence. His light fills heaven and there is no room for any darkness. His is the only source of light and the only source of water. And he gives us complete life, peace, and wholeness. I don't know about you, But that's something, I think, to be excited about. That's something that we, like little children, should be saying, I can't wait to get there, I can't wait to get there. And it's also something that should impact how we live our lives now and and our desire to help others get there as well. And so the question is, well, how do we get there? Well, pretty simple. Jesus made it possible. He made it possible for us to get there. You know, one of our core values here at Susquehanna Valley Church is that everyone's invited. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your background is, what you've done in your life, what color your skin is. I don't care. It doesn't matter because you're invited. In heaven, if possible, which I believe it is, 
even more so everyone's invited. You know, Christianity often gets accused of being very exclusive. You know, we, we get accused of saying, how can you say there's only one way to heaven? Doesn't, isn't that selfish? Isn't that, isn't that cutting people out? The opposite is actually true. Christianity's message is not an exclusive one. It is an inclusive one. It is for everyone. You know, when Jesus was talking to his disciples about preparing a place for them in John chapter 14, he said, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And then Thomas, one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But Jesus didn't just come to give that message to the Jews. He came to give that message and to provide salvation for everyone. Everyone is invited. I want to quote one last time from The Great Divorce. And speaking of who gets to go to heaven, it says this. Everyone who wishes it does, never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Look, the reality is, is that our sin, that, that thing that separates us from God, that rebellion against God, that selfishness, our sin is such an egregious offense against God that it requires a payment. It requires a punishment. But here's the good news. What Jesus did on the cross is he took that punishment and payment for us. It was a price that we were supposed to pay and that he didn't have to pay, but he did it willingly so that we wouldn't have to pay it. And that gift of salvation is a gift that's freely given to anyone who wants it. And it's not something we can earn. We can't be good enough to get there. We just have to accept that gift. My sin, your sin, all of our sin is washed away on the cross of Jesus. And the book of Revelation closes by saying, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I preached a sermon a few months ago uh, in which I showed a painting. I'd like to show it again because I think it's, just, it's become such a dear painting to me but it's so appropriate for what we're talking about. It's called First Day in Heaven by the artist Carolos Safwad. I just love this image. And you look and you see the just absolute rapturous joy in that young lady's face as she jumps into Jesus' arms on that first day in heaven. When we think about heaven, we think that Jesus is there. He fills it. He fulfills every longing and desire that we've ever had. There will be no evil, no hurt, no harm there. And he has paved, paved the way for us to get there. How can that not impact the way we live our lives today? You know, during this series, we would like to encourage you to take one scripture verse and memorize it. And I encourage you to write it down and, and to read it and to meditate on it. Commit it to memory. And it's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. 
But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. When we talk about what Jesus did to give us a way into heaven, it brings us directly to the act of communion. Communion is a time where we reflect personally and together as a family on what Jesus Christ did on the cross by sacrificing himself for our sins. That when we come together around the table of communion and we celebrate that together, it's meant to be a time of personal reflection. Now, hopefully you've been able to gather some uh, communion elements around you. Maybe it's a cup of juice and a piece of bread or some crackers. We're going to celebrate that meal together. But as we do so, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for heaven that we have something to look forward to beyond this life and that you are there, that you've paved a way for us to get there. And now we spend time and we reflect upon how you paved that way. We're so incredibly grateful to you. I pray that you would bless this time for each person as they share in communion wherever they are. Amen. So the night before Jesus was crucified, he and his disciples spent the night sharing the Passover meal together. And Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink. Let's pray together. Father, again, we are so incredibly awed, grateful, thankful. We are floored by your love, your mercy, and that you care so much about us that you would give us hope and a promise. I pray that that hope and promise would ring true in each of our hearts and that it would spur us on to be excited for what's coming, but to also live our lives here, in the, here and now in a way that reflects our excitement and shares that good news with others. Amen. We're going to close our service by singing the song, Death Was Arrested. And I just want to share a little bit about this song. It was written by a group, North Point Music. And when the writer of the song, he was inspired by a gravestone that he saw. And on the gravestone, speaking about the man who was buried there, it said, death arrested his progress. Meaning death arrested his progress in life. And it got him thinking. It really struck him. And he realized what struck him was that Jesus arrested death. Death cannot separate us from the love of God. And so this song is a song of freedom, a song of celebration. So I invite you to think of it in that way as we sing it together.